everyone. This is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media and your host here on Left, Right, and Center. So former President Donald Trump has not faced any legal accountability for trying to overturn the 2020 election, at least not at this point. But one of the most closely watched investigations into Trump is happening in the state of Georgia. This is the state where, of course, he told Republican officials to find enough votes to flip the state from Joe Biden's column to his. A special grand jury in the Atlanta area has been investigating that call and more, and a judge released part of their report on the investigation this week, just a part. Holly Bailey is a national correspondent for The Washington Post, and she has been closely covering all of this and joins us. Hey, Holly. Hello. I want to be really careful here because it sounds like we know some, but we certainly don't know everything. Um, so s- summarize for us at this point what we have from this this partial report that, that, that we have our eyes on now. Well, you put it very correctly. We know very little, actually. But what happened was Judge Robert McMurdy, who has been overseeing um, this grand jury, released part of what was the final report of the special grand jury. Um, And it gave us some clues, not very many as to what they were examining. They confirmed that they heard from 75 witnesses. Um, And I should back up and say that you know, he released three sections. It was um, an introduction and a conclusion, and then a section where they talked about um, their concerns that one or more witnesses may have committed perjury during the testimony, during this eight-month investigation in which they heard from witnesses. Um, And as for everything else, we don't know much because everything that they laid out in terms of what charges, if any should be filed, that's all still under seal. Um, so it's a very limited view of what the grand jury was doing. But perjury, if the grand jury is correct, that perjury may have been committed by some witnesses. We might not know who those witnesses are, but perjury obviously is is potentially a significant crime and one that we often find comes out of grand jury investigations. It's not always like the potential crime itself that a grand jury or, or prosecutor is looking at. It could be something that that comes out during the course of an investigation like this. Right. I mean, and, and it's it's the cover-up, right, um, is essentially what people are wondering. But yeah, I mean, they did not... One of the reasons that that part was released is because it didn't name any names. Um, and Judge McBurney, and just following up, you know, on a hearing that we had several weeks ago, Bonnie Willis is the district attorney in Fulton County who has been leading this investigation. And she argued at that point that she did not want any of this report released because she didn't want to violate the, quote, due process of any future defendants. And the judge, in agreeing this week to release parts of this report, um, agreed with her and said, we don't want to, you know, have violate any due process. We don't want to jeopardize the still ongoing criminal investigation. And so that's why we were able to see some excerpts today that name absolutely nothing. But he, but Judge McBurney has given us some hints of what the grand jury did do in this report and the, and the parts that we haven't seen. He said that they have comp- compiled a roster of who or who should not face charges, which is what exactly, you know, that Bonnie Willis asked this panel to do. Now, how quickly we're going to see this, who knows? Um, you know, Fannie Willis is now going to have to determine whether she brings any of these recommendations to a regular grand jury, um, a special grand jury um, like the one that's been examining this. They can't bring criminal charges. So she has to convene a second grand jury to present a case if she chooses to do that. Oh, interesting. Okay, so she's going to use this special grand jury's findings to decide whether or not to then go to a regular grand jury and then bring charges 
that might stem from activities during the time that that the Trump campaign was suggesting that that this be overturned in Georgia or these these perjury suggestions that are there, any of those charges would all go before a, a new grand jury that she would have to convene. Right. And that could happen, you know, within weeks. It could happen within months. It re- we really don't know. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I find very interesting about the release today is, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody covering this knew what to expect. Um, we kind of have been looking at broader points of this investigation and the numerous other investigations that have been going on, including the January 6th committee, which released its, you know, a gigantic report that was like 600 pages long. But today, um, the sections, the page numbers that were unsealed suggest that this report is very short. Um, It may be only as long as nine pages, which tells you that maybe either the grand jury just got to the point or they're offering no narrative. I mean, there obviously could be some additions to this report, like appendixes that do offer some narrative of what people told this grand jury. Um, But we still are, it's, you know, as much as anticipation as there was about what came out in this report today, these excerpts, we still don't know a lot of what this grand jury found. And there's going to still be a lot of attention on Atlanta, Georgia, for sure. But we do know that the grand jury has a view on whether or not there was election fraud that, that took place or serious election fraud in the state of Georgia, right? We do. They said um, that they unanimously agreed that there was no widespread election fraud um, that occurred in Georgia that could have altered the outcome of the uh, the 2020 election. Um, and so certainly I expect that we're going to probably hear from President Trump on that and his allies who still to this day or argue that there was wrongdoing that flipped the election in favor of Joe Biden. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that they declared, but, you know, it's against these other things that people are curious about. You know, did anybody break the law in trying to overturn the election? And also these perjury charges, potential perjury charges. Potential perjury charges, and, and again, just to underscore, we don't even know who they're talking about as, as potentially committing perjury, but, but can you just remind us, I mean, some of the names that we know of, the, the people who did testify before the special grand jury? Um, uh, there's a lot of well-known people. Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows testified, though we don't know if he invoked his um, right to, uh, to the Fifth Amendment. Um, Lindsey Graham testified. I mean, a litany of high-profile Republicans in Georgia, including the governor, Brian Kemp, um, 75 witnesses in total and that included poll workers, that included lower-level Trump campaign staffers, Trump lawyers. We do know there's 18, um, at least 18 targets of the investigation, and that includes Rudy Giuliani. Um, you know, so you know, this is potentially, you know, major legal peril for some of these people. But I don't think we're necessarily going to know the answer of what happens <laughs> for at least several more weeks. When you say during that time, whatever amount of time it is, you know, there's going to be a lot of attention on Georgia. And and can you just kind of remind us the larger context here? I mean, there are all these different legal investigations that Trump and his team are are confronting. Um, how significant is this Georgia investigation and, and where does it fit kind of in the larger puzzle? Well, it's this is playing out against, you know, a litany of other investigations, including most recently um, DOJ um, appointing a special counsel who has subpoenaed um, election officials in Georgia and around the country sort of trying to understand some of these different scenarios that the Trump campaign tried to present, including alternate electors and so forth. Um, just this week, um, the special counsel has um, attempted to subpoena Mike Pence and Mark Meadows to testify about their conversations um, around 
you know, leading up in, in the aftermath of the election, leading up to January 6th. So, yes, but, you know, this is one of the interesting things about this investigation is that there is a limited, you know, the Trump campaign has been very, I think, notably very, very quiet about this investigation versus um, the other investigations that have been going on. I mean, of course, President Trump, former President Trump has, you know, sort of attacked Fonnie Willis, um, saying this is a political witch hunt. But it's very interesting, you know, he has a, a slate of attorneys in Georgia who have been very quiet, um, and I think notably quiet about talking about this investigation because I think, and that that signals to me that they know this is very serious. Um, and last month, when I reached out to them, they did say that they've had, you know, that pres- former President Trump was never um, asked to come in to give testimony to the grand jury, um, either through subpoena or voluntarily. Um, but they did not answer if he has been notified that he's a target of the investigation. And I think. The answer to that question um, is is pivotal. I mean, it's does he if, is he a target? I mean, we don't know, and the DA's office isn't saying either. By the way, all right, Holly Bailey is a national correspondent for the Washington Post, uh, covering um, this this special grand jury and and much else in in Georgia as we look at as these Trump investigations go on. Holly, um, I know you're busy. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes for us. Thank you. And I have our regular panel with us: Moa Lathy, executive director at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service, and was communications director for the Democratic National Committee, and Sarah Isger is here as well. She is a lawyer who was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump, and she's now senior editor at the Dispatch. And Sarah, I'm I'm really curious what you think of this development, just given you know your time in the Trump DOJ and as a lawyer who's been following all of this. Is this significant? In terms of what is going on in Georgia, absolutely. I, you know, I've thought for some time that Georgia. And this grand jury investigation is where Trump has the most actual legal liability of all of the ongoing investigations, including the Department of Justice's, by the way. Uh, But there are some problems. Uh, You know, for instance, and others have pointed this out, there's potentially a constitutional problem here where even if they indicted Donald Trump and got a conviction, um, that this would be appealed on the grounds that a state prosecutor can't actually prosecute a former president for actions he took while in office that were part of his, um, you know, actions as president. Official duties, however you want to call it, there's a separation of powers issue that has never really been worked out in the courts. I know that gets kind of in the weeds, but it goes to some of these larger questions when you're talking about a former president um, and indicting them. You know, our constitution has this system for handling this of impeachment um, and then bringing federal charges. And so we're in a bit of uncharted territory here. You know, the the grand jury saying that some unnamed witnesses may have committed perjury and they suggested the district attorney pursue that. Perjury is very hard charge to, to bring and win. Not impossible. You do hear about it from time to time. But don't forget, you don't uh, only have to prove that the person lied to the grand jury. You have to prove that they knew at the time that they were lying. And that's just always um, an uphill battle. But this is something we often see come out of come out of investigations like this, right? As, as Holly said, you know, the cover-up can be as interesting and consequential as, as whatever happened to, to get the whole thing started in the first place. Well, we see efforts to do this. You know, remember that, for instance, out of the Durham investigation, he brought a similar type of charge lying to federal investigators um, against a lawyer who had been attached to the Clinton campaign, and he was acquitted on those charges. Uh, So, you know, you can bring the charges, but A, they can be hard to prove, and B, don't forget that we're talking about juries here, and juries can have their own minds. Mo, do you see this as a significant development? 
it is on uh, I think on a couple of levels. Um, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'll leave it to the lawyers to argue what the legal implications are. But there are some potential very real political implications here. Uh, Donald Trump is currently one of two announced Republican candidates for president. And so the fact that all of this is going on against the backdrop of a presidential campaign can do a couple of different things, right? Donald Trump loves the politics of victimization. He loves to speak of himself as a victim. And this could play right into that. And this plays right into that. The question is, does it help him or not? And and I think it's a little early to know for sure, but I do think a couple of things could happen here. Number one, Donald Trump gets all hopped up on this and talks about it all he can in in the hopes that it whips up his base. But I don't know that that's as effective today as it once was because I do think Donald Trump talking about his being persecuted in the context of the 2020 elections, that's gotten kind of old. And a lot of people, while he still has his supporters, there are a lot of people out there who are tired of that conversation, a lot of Republicans who are tired of that conversation and want to move forward. So if it, you know, this baits him, if he takes the bait and actually starts talking about this, I don't know that that helps him. It also gives his opponents, Nikki Haley, who's now formally in the race, Tim Scott and some of the others, the opportunity to say, you know, enough's enough. We need to move forward. We need to move on as a party. Donald Trump— You can have a Republican who shares your values but doesn't bring all of this this legal mess with it. One of the biggest problems that Donald Trump faces politically is that people are tired of chaos. And it seems that every time he's in the news, he reminds them that he is chaos on two legs. But can I ask you, that this development feels like the worst case scenario in some ways for Democrats because it's like it's it's an incremental story that brings the question of the 2020 election back into focus, but with no clear resolution. There are no charges. It seems like it's just this perfect opportunity for President Trump to say like, yep, see, they're always after me and, and there's no resolution. I'm, you know, no charges. They're just always on this witch hunt. Nope, I think the politics of this, um, there's no way that it blows back on Democrats, I don't think. I think Republicans just squandered a huge opportunity in the 2022 midterms to, to, um, you know, to create a red wave. And it was much of this, the chaos around this, that caused a huge political backlash on them. So I think the best thing Democrats can do is just kind of keep their heads down and do their thing and let this play out in the courts. Donald Trump is going to deliver the most potent Democratic talking points on this that anybody could give. But David, here's where I think you're right about that. I think that the proliferation of investigations against Donald Trump has helped Donald Trump. It all fades into the background. I think it was a mistake for the judge to release the grand jury report piecemeal like this, as I said, like this didn't really tell us anything. You know, you were talking with Holly about that. Um, And so instead it just creates noise. And noise does in the end help Donald Trump as opposed to there being one investigation with an announcement of who's being indicted. Here's how it's moving forward. Here we go. Instead, you have Georgia, you have 
three DOJ investigations. You have the New York City district attorney basically hopping into the fray for no reason um, that I can discern. And then you have the civil investigations going on in New York. I think all of that creates a noise that Republican primary voters are largely tuning out at this point. All right, we got to take a break, um, but we'll be right back uh, to talk about the United States and how to prioritize aid uh, as all sorts of disasters and crises around the world seem to be getting worse. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. All right, we are back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm David Green. Moa Lathy and Sarah Isger are both here. It has been a year now since Russia began its full invasion of Ukraine. The United States has provided billions of dollars in aid to the Ukrainians, but there are increasing signs that that support is softening. According to multiple reports, the Biden administration is warning Ukraine that they can't count on Western support forever. It's not unlimited. And this could be one reason why. Polling in the United States suggests a softening of support in the public. In May, a few months after the invasion, 60 percent of U.S. adults favored sending weapons to Ukraine. Well, that number has dropped to 48 percent, according to a new AP Nork Center poll. So what shapes a president's decision making and a government's decision making in a crisis like this? And how should the United States prioritize Crises like the war in Ukraine when there are other acute crises in the world, like that massive earthquake causing such catastrophic loss of life in Turkey and Syria. Um, Mo, I guess I'll throw this to you. I mean, how much should public opinion matter as, as President Biden weighs how much aid he can keep offering and keep fighting for when it comes to this war? Well, I don't think it's it. it it is or should be totally insignificant. I, I do think it, it should factor in a bit, but it should factor in in a number of different ways. I mean, if if the bottom falls out and, so, and public support completely craters uh, and, and you're seeing minimal support amongst the public for staying involved, that's something the president would have to, would have to look at. But having said that... Um, I think it also is important to look at public support um, as there is a geopolitical strategic uh, decision that needs to be made. If public support starts to waver or soften, then the president's got to focus on winning it back if the president believes that that strategic imperative is crucial. I think it is. And we've talked about this a, a number of times that allow that just walking away from Ukraine not only emboldens Putin, not only places all of Europe in a very precarious situation, but it also emboldens China in what they're trying to do with Taiwan. So there are real geostrategic reasons to remain steadfast in uh, our support for Ukraine. The president's got to pay attention to public opinion because if public opinion starts to waver and that starts to embolden some of his opponents in Congress, um, it, it becomes a lot messier. I think the president is right to say to Ukraine that this isn't necessarily an unlimited amount of support. 
because he's got to send a signal to the American public that he understands their concern. But at the same time, he's got to be careful not to feed into that, not to feed into the critics on the Hill um, and to start figuring out how to make a more compelling case to remain engaged. Sarah, are, are you and Mo on the same page when it comes to what the strategic imperative is for the United States to continue, you know, large amounts of aid to Ukraine? Maybe, but I want to phrase it a little differently, which is, uh, A, public opinion shouldn't matter to presidents nearly as much as it does. Mo and I are probably on the same page as this, on this, um, you know, public opinion matters in terms of your ability to keep doing what you're doing, but it is your job to pay attention to all this, to do the briefings and to under, you know, to spend your day, your job, um, absorbing all this information that the American people aren't going to have the time to do. It's their job to also go to their work and pay attention to what they're doing. Uh, and so presidents spend far too much time, you know, weather veining this stuff on people who are reading a few news articles at most. So especially when it comes to foreign policy, they're supposed to be the experts. Now, what are they then supposed to do? This is where people I'm sure aren't going to like my answer. Um, because it sounds heartless in the face of, as you say, there's so many different problems in the world. But this is why you only and always act in America's strategic interest, because there are so many different interconnected webs here that you have to be thoughtful about it and strategic about it. And so when it comes to Ukraine, absolutely, I think this is where Mo and I strongly agree, it's actually about Taiwan, it's actually about China far more than it's ever been about Russia. And in that sense, I think Ukraine is very much in our strategic interest. If that changes, then the calculation changes, unfortunately. And, you know, you and I talked about the earthquake last week and how I was explaining that giving money to Ukraine actually hurt the victims of that earthquake because then Russia was unwilling to sort of play ball with some of the things that they could have done to ease aid efforts in the earthquake situation. And that's how geopolitics works. I wanted to ask you both about um, this piece in Foreign Policy magazine that, that grabbed my attention. It's, it's by Stephen Walt. He's an international affairs professor at Harvard and, and someone who, you know, is, is known for um, being skeptical of, of intervention. So, I mean, we should say that. But he's been urging all along that Ukraine policy can't be shaped by moral outrage or hyperbolic statements from people who really don't know much about, you know, the intricacies of, of diplomacy and, and foreign policy. And Sarah, I know you've, you've brought that up before. And he wrote in this new piece that while Putin's invasion is, is immoral, it's horrific, and that the stakes for Ukraine and Ukrainians could not be higher. Um, you know, in truth, this narrative that allowing Putin to, quote, succeed will alter the entire world order and cause China to invade Taiwan and cause, cause the world order to, to fall apart. I mean, he said the future of the world is going to be determined much more by which countries control key technologies, by climate change, by political developments in many other places. And, and I guess I just wonder, like, you know, I don't necessarily agree with him, um, but I bring this up because that's what we do here. We, we grapple with stuff. Like, Mo, does he have a point? Um, n n no. I mean, I think, the, he, sure, we don't know for certain that if Ukraine falls, that it starts a domino effect. We don't know that for certain. We don't know that it wouldn't. 
What we know is that when you look at human history, when you look at history of, of, of international affairs in the modern era, in the past century or so, that when, uh, when you see people like Putin, when you see autocrats start to make massive land grabs, bad things can happen. Uh, and we are in a global struggle over democracy. We do have an obligation to protect our allies from this type of um, hostile behavior. Uh, it, it, it almost sounds to me like that is an argument to kind of throw out the whole NATO treaty. Sure, we don't know, but we have an obligation, not on moral grounds, but on strategic grounds uh, and international alliances to to take care of our friends in Europe. And we know that China is watching this very closely. So I, I mean, I, I take the point that we don't know that bad things happen if if Putin succeeds, but history would tell us bad things probably would happen if Putin succeeds. And to just kind of sit back and say, well, since we don't know, we ought to just let this thing happen. I mean, that feels very, you know, Neville Chamberlain in the late 1930s to me. And I don't think that's where the direction we want to head in. I mean, I think what he's saying also is, is just to think about a few of the things you mentioned, massive land grab. Um, I mean, he's making the point that that in the very beginning, when we all thought that Putin could take Kiev and, and take all of Ukraine, those stakes were different than they are right now, because we're talking about potentially, you know, I mean, who can get in the mind of Putin? Who knows? He might start, you know, bombing Kiev and Lviv and trying to take the whole country again. But if it's about Crimea, if it's about territory in Donbass, while to Ukrainians, that is absolutely worth fighting for. And I would want to be there fighting alongside them if I could. The question is, does that lessen the strategic imperative for the United States? I mean, look at a former Soviet Republic like Georgia, you know, South Ossetia is is under Russian control. What, you know, that's terrible for Georgia. And it, and it drives me insane because I love that country. But in terms of a United States strategic imperative, those things are more important to Russia than they might be to the United States. Yeah, and Crimea is a, a horrible good example. Um, I do appreciate that Mo avoided Godwin's law, just barely, because he went with Neville Chamberlain instead of the Hitler comparison. Um, but I think the point uh, maybe still stands, look, this is the right question to be asking, and it's the right debate to be having. That's what I think I'm so in favor of about this article. Not that his answer is correct. I don't know that it is. And frankly, as Mo points out, none of us know whether it is or not. But he's at least asking the right question. If Russia takes Ukraine, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for the world order, to Mo's point? Because that affects us too. I don't just mean that, you know, Russia takes Ukraine and then they invade us next. Obviously, that's not the Neville Chamberlain comparison. And yet, nevertheless, World War II very much affected the United States. Um, but I also think it's worth saying, not everything is Hitler. Not everything is Neville Chamberlain. Horrible things happen in the world. They're terrible autocratic rulers and their territorial ambitions do not strategically impact us. Now, as I said at the beginning, I think there's a really good argument that there 
is a reason to believe that this affects Taiwan and it affects our relationship with China. Though, as he points out, perhaps less than we initially thought, you know, we believed that China would sort of be right there with Russia, helping them out at every step, and they kind of haven't been. So that's interesting in and of itself. I think when the point comes, if the point comes that the U.S. would need to commit more, that's when we need to be thoughtful about the questions that we're asking and the debates we're having so we're not wasting time or arguing about the wrong things. This, at least, is the right question. But I don't think it's a revolutionary question. I think this is what we do. This is what the president does. There are plenty of examples around the world of of hostilities between two nations and one country overstepping and and we slap them on the wrist with some with some sanctions or we put out a, a strongly worded letter. We don't get involved because it isn't in our strategic interest. To say that, yes, we should always operate in the United States strategic interests, and it is up to each president as well as sort of our entire history to kind of decide what that strategic interest is. This one, I think, was pretty clear cut for a lot of people that it is in our interest to get involved and not let Putin uh, run run wild uh, without some sort of check. And we did it deliberately. We did it strategically, and it's still in, evolving to some extent. We're not jumping in with troops on with boots on the ground. We're not engaging militarily directly. We're being strategic in our approach, but it was all driven by what our strategic imperative was. I think that is the question that we ask all the time, um, at least responsible uh, presidents do. And I think that's what's been going on here from the beginning. I doubt Joe Biden would ever want to read, you know, an article like the one I'm talking about in foreign policy and say publicly that he agreed with it. I mean, I don't know. But it it seems like what we're seeing from this president so far has been finding that right balance to 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 both listen to the moral outrage um, and embrace it and say the right things rhetorically but have a a measured approach, send warnings that aid might not be limitless, and and really do a careful balancing act here. Is that fair? Yes. I, I just think that perhaps Mo's actually getting at something also kind of fundamental here, which is um, when we talk about America's strategic interest, then we disagree about what's in our strategic interest. And Mo's right. There are plenty of conflicts going around the world that we're not talking about whether we should be involved in. Um, But I think it's very easy to get wrapped up in incredibly sympathetic pictures and stories, triumph and heartbreak coming out of Ukraine. And that's not a question of America's strategic interest. Although there's some moral imperative. I mean, to me, you can never ignore that. I mean, there's something about who we are as a people that that does matter. But if that's the moral imperative, then there's a whole lot of other things around the world. There's a lot of morally bad, bad stuff going on. Just check Afghanistan. We pulled out of that country and look what is happening to the women in Afghanistan. Yes, I agree. I'm just saying you can't ignore that that moral imperative, but you're absolutely right when it comes to, I mean, if we we open that door, I mean, we, we would be saying that we can save every human being alive in the entire planet, which is, which is, Impossible. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. I'm afraid that the discussion of Ukraine will be going on for some time on other shows. We'll be right back to talk about a popular and kind of controversial hit TV series, The Last of Us. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. 
Thanks for listening to Left, Right, and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, David Green. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been watching The Last of Us. I just started it. I'm two episodes in, and uh, I'm not going to lie. I had a nightmare last night about my brain being controlled by predatory mushrooms, and I, I actually woke up my wife. I was so freaked out. Uh, so this this is the HBO series about an apocalyptic future where an uncontrolled brain-eating fungus evolves with global warming and begins attacking people and then kills most of humanity. And then our government is totally unable to stop it. Not surprisingly, this video game turned TV show has hit home for some people in our post-pandemic world. But unlike in real life where governments around the globe stepped up with a vaccine and health policies, The Last of Us presents a dystopian world in which the government is utterly incompetent and useless. One could argue the government becomes predatory itself in desperation. I mean, fiction can serve as a way of playing out our biggest fears, albeit hopefully in a safe and predictable way. And it is easy to see how the pandemic and climate change might leave people feeling kind of powerless in the face of global events. Our trust in government in real life is already down, which makes a narrative like The Last of Us feel like piling on. I mean, who can we rely on to survive? Our neighbors? Just ourselves? Maybe it's no wonder that the show's heroes are a lone man and a teenage girl. Um, Sarah, I understand you have been following this show religiously and that your husband even plays the video game it was based on. I mean, what, what, since you've been thinking about this and digesting this show a lot, what does it mean for you? And, and isn't the world depressing enough that, that you don't need to see an even more negative version of it like this? Okay, this is a major topic of conversation in my marriage. Good. Bring it into us. Bring us into that room. Um, we watched Station Eleven as well, which also is a post-apocalyptic, very COVID-esque virus um, uh, with a higher mortality rate, kills about 90% of the world's population and sort of what happens after that. Um, and I think that the point about the role of the U.S. government and what it says about our current cultural zeitgeist is fascinating. Because, I mean, again, I've always found what are the popular books or TV shows or movies in a decade and what it says about where we were. And certainly in that post-Cold War era where all of a sudden there's a lot of alien movies or asteroids. It's coming from somewhere else now um, because the Cold War is over and, and how we grappled with that. And there have been a lot of a post-apocalypse television shows and movies of late. And I think that the government, you know, as you said, it was clearly overwhelmed at the beginning of this show, but they have obviously turned into a both incompetent and nefarious and authoritarian evil regime at the point where we are 20 years later after the, the fungus hits where they're killing innocents, there's rape and murder, um, and... And I think that I think it says a lot about where we are and how we see our government uh, in a post-COVID world for sure. But I also think whether it's Station Eleven or Last of Us, it also says something very basic about us as humans, which is that we feel very much a desire to have a purpose, to have a sense of duty, to need and be needed. 
And that that is not a relationship with the government. That's a relationship with one another. And so in Latin, Station Eleven, you know, people form these little tribes. And the tribe that you follow in that show is a band of traveling Shakespeare actors. And in The Last of Us, um, you are meeting up with these little groups of people and there's these vignettes, but it's about that relationship that people have with each other and that that's where we get our sense of purpose and meaning. And it's not from money, stuff, government. And I think that that's actually something very beautiful that could come out of our current time about civic institutions and civic trust at a time that that's falling. Stop looking to political parties or your ideology or a stranger on social media who cannot save you from the zombie apocalypse, but look to your neighbors and your your friends and those human relationships that you have. But isn't the dangerous extension of that, and I, and I see the, the beauty that, that, that you're seeing to, to, to some extent, but isn't the, the extension of that a just coming to the conclusion that your government is incompetent and um, and that total anarchy may be a safer option if the planet falls apart. Well, I mean, look, these are movies. Let's like not overread stuff. And I think that COVID actually showed what the government is incredibly good at. It's good at reallocating resources, taking money from all of us, and then putting it in one giant pool to spend on a thing that is for all of us. In the case of COVID, Operation Warp Speed was a success beyond our wildest imaginations. But it wasn't that the government invented the vaccine. It was the government pooled money from all of us and put it towards the development of a vaccine out in all of those private companies that were then able to do it so fast. And I mean, I'm incredibly grateful for that. So yeah, government's good at some things and it's bad at some things. And it's particularly bad when you're relying on them for that sense of duty and purpose and meaning in life. And I think that's my point. You know, I, I'll tell you, and, and my, my brain might be affected by watching all this crazy television. So who knows where it's going and maybe it's infected by mushrooms. I have no idea. But, um, but I, I, I want to get kind of serious because I'll tell you where my mind went when I started watching this show. A few years ago, I mean, it's, it's been a few years now, it was 2016, but I, I've never been able to forget, and it came back to me watching this, this interview that Steve Inskeep, who was my colleague at, at NPR Morning Edition, did um, with a guy named Jimmy Arno from the state of Georgia. He's a mechanic. He's a father. He talked in, to Steve about his Christian faith. He talked about how he once flew the Confederate flag, but then took it down because his his daughter's friends were uncomfortable with it. You know, he really opened up. Um and he said he was thinking about joining a local militia because he said, should martial law, civil war, whatever, break out in this country, that they, that militia, would uphold the Constitution and rebuild our laws. And, and Steve summed up this piece saying that, that Jimmy you know, and his wife don't want to start some war, but that if chaos ever comes, they want to be ready. So it's, you know, you said this is just a show and, and I, I don't disagree with that, but I, I guess my question is, can entertainment like this play on fears and push people like Jimmy in a dangerous direction when these potential dangers are there? We're in a moment in our country where distrust in government can quickly become violent and problematic. Yes, it can. Look, I, I'm not watching the show, Zom the whole zombie apocalypse thing just doesn't do it for me. But I, you know, in in thinking about this and and uh, in preparation for our conversation, I started thinking about when was the last time public service and government was portrayed in a positive way 
at scale in in popular culture. I I can't really think of anything since like The West Wing, mm. where it was portrayed aspirationally. Well, it certainly was portrayed that way, yeah. Right. Where ever since, I mean, when you think about the the shows and the movies that focus on government or politics, it's like House of Cards or Scandal or Veep. What about Parks and Rec? Parks and Rec was like the famous Obama-era show that showed government as being this wonderful good. Sure, but I think my my bigger point is it is far easier and far more prevalent to see it being portrayed as nefarious or incompetent or satirically, right? It is It is not very often being portrayed in any sort of aspirational way. Now, I'm not saying let's have a bunch of movies come out that all are about how great government is. But there is a tendency right now to prey on sort of people's fears and people's frustrations with government. And it becomes a, a, a loop. It becomes a cycle that feeds on itself. Sarah and I are in agreement that COVID was and remains an outstanding example of government at its best. Under two different presidents, Operation Warp Speed under President Trump got the vaccine production done uh, at, at a record speed. And under President Biden, it got distributed and we got the shots in people's arms. But there still is that sense that government isn't working for you. And look at how politicized COVID has become with half the country thinking that it was a huge government failure. And so the fact that pop culture continues to feed on that and portray government and public servants as incompetent, nefarious idiots, like I don't think that's healthy. I get it. It sells tickets. People are watching it. I just wish that there was a little bit more of the Parks and Rec and West Wing uh, vibe that would get out there sometimes that show that government does a lot of really good things too. But has there ever been that much of that? I mean, the, the, Joanna Weiss wrote this piece in Politico about The Last of Us, you know, saying that that the how government is portrayed has evolved over time. Like there were the earlier dystopian, you know, like 1984. I mean, Big Brother and that your government's masterminds and controlling us. The message here is, yeah, your government's incompetent and, and cruel. I mean, ha- haven't like West Wing parts and rec always been the exception to the rule? Maybe so. I'm all for aspiration and I'm and I would like to uh, I would like to be aspirational and hopeful that our pop culture begins to show the other side of this story as well a little bit more often. At a time when it's really important, when it's really needed. Yeah. I do think her point is well taken that it is more realistic that our government is more likely not to be the 1984 all-knowing um, incredibly efficient big brother and more likely to be the incompetent authoritarian government of Last of Us. I guess it just hits me that, I don't know, like that there have been a lot of portrayals in in pop culture of our government being not good and helpful. Yes, 100%. Um, and that this is just entertainment. Yes, 100%. But, but I just, this moment and thinking about the risk of people joining militias and the risk of people believing. I mean, I think about Brazil. I think about January 6th. It, it just like this feels like, and again, I'm a huge believer in entertainment. I'm obsessed with this show. And I actually, you know, I'm a big fan of everything zombie related that is zombie related entertainment. I love dystopian <laughs> stuff, but it, it's just, <laughs> yeah, quote me on that. But I just, I don't know. It feels like this, this show at this moment feels alarming to me. 
I just finished Adam Hochschild's book, American Midnight, which is 1914 to 1920 or so in the United States. And that's the nightmare you should be worried about. That's where you're throwing a thousand plus people as long-term political prisoners for something they have said or thought. Um, That's where you have the government through private militias working with the Department of Justice, rounding up people in the Palmer raids. Um, That's actually the nightmare scenario, and it's real. And the only way it works is if people are thoughtful about it, willing to push back on it, um, willing to stand up for civil liberties along the way. So I think there's a healthy balance to be struck here between not always rah-rahing, government's always right, the experts know everything. No, they don't always. No, and I'm not suggesting that either. I'm just, and it, but look, it's not just government, right? I mean, for most people who have never been to the great city of Baltimore, what is their perception of that city? For a lot of people, it's The Wire. Great yep. show. But it portrayed Baltimore in not the best light. For people that don't spend a lot of time in the Ozarks, the show Ozark colors their their perception of it. Another fantastic show. But it sure makes the people who live in that community uh, look a certain way. There's not a lot of nuance here, right, in a lot of this. My point is that when a narrative takes hold and pop culture continues to feed that narrative over time, it really frames how people look at the entity, whether it's the city of Baltimore, whether it's the Ozarks, or whether it's government writ large. Uh, And I think we just need to be careful about that sometimes. I will say, I don't want to give too much away, Mo. Once you start watching these early episodes, at least, if you do, you're never going to want to go to the city of Boston again. Um, And that is a city that I I (laughs) really love. Um, And uh, we will have to leave it there. And it is time once again for our left, right, and center rants and raves. Uh, Sarah, I will go to you first today. I don't remember whose turn it is if we ever have turns, but go for it. Well, Don Lemon on CNN was talking about Nikki Haley announcing she was running for the Republican nomination for president. And here's the transcript. Nikki Haley isn't in her prime. Sorry, when a woman is considered to be in her prime in her 20s and 30s and maybe 40s, He's interrupted by his co-host, Poppy Harlow. Are you talking about prime for, like, childbearing? Don Lemon, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just saying what the facts are. Google it. As someone who ran Carly Fiorina's campaign in 2016 uh, and knows the upsides and downsides of running as a woman for president in this country, I just can't imagine anyone across the political spectrum saying such a thing about Hillary Clinton and still having their job the next day. I find it so incredibly offensive that according to Don Lemon, a woman isn't constitutionally able to run for president while she's in her prime for the most part. And the fact that these are still things that are happening, you know, major news organizations, and it's just casually thrown out there. And we have had such a uh, a cultural conversation about racism in this country that I think has been, for the most part, productive in the last few years. And yet when it comes to sexism, when it comes to women, this sort of stuff, particularly when it's coming from the left and it's about conservative women, is considered okay because it's fine if you're sexist towards conservatives. All right, Mo. Well, uh, just say, Sarah, couldn't agree with you any more about the problem. But as someone who worked on Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign, we ought to compare notes because a lot of stuff similar was being said about her in mainstream media 
back then. Uh, and it wasn't okay, but it was overlooked. Uh, but I'm going to also uh, hearken back to something in, connected to Nikki Haley's announcement. Nikki Haley, in her announcement, leaned very, very heavily into a generational change argument. Uh, that's not new, right? She wouldn't be the first candidate to run on a generational change argument. On both sides of the aisle, people like Barack Obama, people like Bill Clinton, people like John F. Kennedy also ran on a generational change argument. I just have a problem with how it's being manifested today because we're going from – there's a fine line between calling for generational change and outright ageism. And I feel like we are crossing that line in too much of our political rhetoric today. At the end of the day, I actually don't care how old a candidate is. As long as the candidate is looking forward, as long as the candidate is connecting with me and my community and my needs, and the candidate's got a vision for what comes next, the generational change we should be talking about is is more on ideas and vision than it is on a candidate's actual age. And I'm really worried about the tone of our our conversation around this uh, right now. Okay, I am going to rave then rant. It is sports. You're welcome to all roll your eyes. I promise it won't always be, but I just want to give kudos to the Philadelphia Eagles, their coaches, their players for dealing with a painful loss with grace and class. They could have complained about a questionable holding penalty at the end that sealed the championship for Kansas City in the Super Bowl. They did not. They said it was a penalty. They said Kansas City deserved the win. That is class. And then you had Kansas City wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster, who I used to love when he was a Steeler. Juju was the receiver who was held by Eagles cornerback James Bradbury on that decisive play. And instead of keeping his mouth shut and celebrating victory with class, Juju posted a photo of Bradbury on a mock Valentine's Day card with the message, I'll hold you when it matters most. Juju might be funny, but you are getting all the criticism you deserve, and I hope it is clouding what could have been a pretty fun celebratory week for you. And that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Holly Bailey from The Washington Post and, of course, Sarah Isger and Moa Lathy. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Singer-Schiff. Our production assistant is Alexandra Applegate. Our executive producer is Arnie Seipel. The show is recorded and mixed by John Meek. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I'm David Green. Thanks for being here and come back next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 